Hello, everybody. It's me, Duncan Trussell. You're about to listen to the Fly Fidelity podcast. I'm right now. I'm hanging out with Luke. We're in a hot air balloon drifting over Bavaria, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation. So you're deaf. Mm-hmm. Losing people to you is so painful. My first novel was called Hard Laughter, and it was about laughing about this very hard stuff. Meditation is preparation for death. I think that's true. And meditation is one spiritual practice that prepares us for death. Uh, do you have any advice for people who are like dealing with death in their own lives? Yeah. Most people spend their lives complaining about things they don't like. Think of like when you start thinking about somebody else and wanting to give them anything. That's what it's all about. I, I love being around people that help me see the world through a new pair of glasses. If you look at the world, what you see is things appearing and disappearing. And humans are a part of the whole of that. So the information you're talking about, acknowledging death is an inevitable part of... Yeah, it's so freeing to accept it. Am I dead? There's no way to stop the heartbreak. How do you... What do you do about that? You cry. You cry. Really hard, and, and and the encounter with truth, which for me, you dying, you're dying. You okay? This thing has been probably the greatest run-in with truth that I've had in my whole life. You can't really. It's inexpressible. People really try to avoid the consideration that they are going to die and that people they love are going to die. It opens your heart. It breaks your heart open. Well, I love you very much, obviously. I love you too. How do you look back on Midnight Gospel as a body of work being as timeless as it's timely? Do any of these themes in the show occupy your mind with a different weight in this moment? Well, the uh, I think that the episode with David in particular is I'm finding that to be really interesting in the sense that I've really started taking meditating seriously, so to speak, even though that's a ridiculous way to put it. And I've been working with him really closely. And I feel like uh, right now, the combination of a daily sitting practice and working with a teacher is giving me the ability to not react in a way that I was reacting in the beginning of this. So not to say that, you know, it's not bothering me or that it's annoying or that, you know, the pandemic is in America is, as as you might be aware, is just like, oh. it's a nightmare over here. I mean, it's a, not a nightmare in the sense of like, I'm experiencing a nightmare, but a nightmare in the sense that we're, we're looking at probably at least a year before things get back to normal, at least, at least. just because at least. Yeah. And so this is hard on people, uh, you know, in a lot of different ways. And uh, I, one way that we all share that it's difficult is that it is an incredibly unstable situation. And things can be one way one day, and the next day, things can be completely fucked up. And so there really isn't a, a, a way to put roots down in the world right now. There's not a way to plan 
There's not a way to say, oh, you know, in two months, we're going to let's take a baby moon to uh, Big Sur or something because we have another child on the way. Oh, really? And, yes. Congrats. And thank you. It's the best. And but, you know, there's no way to like plan as we used to. There's no way to to right. to think, you know, even thinking about schools for the kids or imagining like maybe we should leave LA and go somewhere else, but where? Because the uh, pandemic's raging across the country and hotspots appear and now is not the time to move. And so, you know, all these things are very chaotic and I feel really lucky that I'm, you know, developing a practice that gives me a kind of something that seems to transcend uh, phenomena. And it's a wild thing, you know, to like, it, you know, it's just why it's a re I'm really grateful right now, I guess is the best way to put it, because I feel now it's like, holy shit, I got so lucky to have these teachers. And some of that came across in Midnight Gospel, but also just in my day to day life, having like folks I can access to really like talk about chaos has been very useful. I hope that answer wasn't too long. No, no, not at all. It was perfect. I mean, we're talking about new beginnings, aren't we? Yeah. How do you think the state of the world right now is challenging the sharpness of your senses in between endings and new beginnings? Right. Yeah. That's, that's called, so the in-between space in Tibetan Buddhism is, that's called the bardo. Right. And yeah. And, and, you know, if you look at your, it's in, you know, and so, so much in this uh, lineage of Buddhism that I'm studying has to do with that in-between space. The, the, the space, for example, in between when you're lost in your thoughts and uh, between being lost in your thoughts and being in, in the world, like being completely in the moment is a bardo state, which is, you know, for, for a moment when you're have a sitting practice, you are suddenly you know, here, you're following your breath, you're here in the, in the, you know, gritty, rugged landscape of present moment awareness. And, um, it's a beautiful place, really. It's a wild, beautiful place. Um, so I, I, I wonder sometimes about the idea of in between in the sense that how, aren't we just basically always in between, you know, I don't, I don't mean that in a flippant way either. I mean, like you're in between sleeps, you're in between meals, you're in between, uh, you're in between, uh, well, depending on how you look at the universe, you're either in between non-existence <laughs> or you're, you know, at the very least, this life is sort of in between other lives. So I think that, that that's sort of the, the reality of being a human is that we are always sort of in between. We always are experiencing an in-betweenness. How does it feel being in between, being a dad for the second time? This is your second time being a father, of course. Yes. How does that feel? Great, it's it's amazing. It's the best. It's, you know, I, I it was, a, in the beginning, it was very difficult, but it's, there's such a, uh, it's such a teaching, you know, it's a guru, it's a, uh, it's a ego demolisher, you know, mm -hmm. it's a, uh, 
selfishness demolisher. I mean, it, it, you can be a selfish dad. God knows there's plenty of them out there. But wow, you're going to be hurting. And, you know, the, the, you know, actually what my friend was just telling me this beautiful quote by Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche, which is sort of like a, a more down to earth portrayal of this idea of the Bodhisattva vow, which is like crazy to, when you hear about this Bodhisattva vow. Uh, and anyone who's ever heard it, if you if you're like me, you're like, that's fucking ridiculous. Like, that's impossible. Why would you even say those words? And and it, it generally involves something along the lines of like, I'm not going to achieve realization until all sentient beings in all universes achieve realization. It sounds so dumb. And also it sounds like, well, what happens if you get a billion bodhisattvas who are all waiting for some bodhisattva to tap out and get enlightened? It just seems like a mathematical <laughs> problem regarding the bodhisattva concept of things. But uh, who knows? I'm, I, I don't understand it enough to really like jab at it. But the uh, a more down-to-earth version of that vow is I vow to put to always put other people in front of myself. Mm. Oh, it's cool. And as a father, you know, that's a really good vow. It's like, you know, and not to say you should just abandon your own pursuits or agendas or self or anything like that, but I've just found that the more I help in, 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 the, in my family and the more that I sort of help, the better I feel, the better things become, the smoother things become. And the more I'm sort of drawn into myself with my, you know, a fixation on whatever particular thing I'm trying to get done or a sense of like, you know, scorekeeping or, you know, any of that shit, then the more painful being in a family becomes. And so I love it in that sense that it produces a really wonderful kind of binary, which is, you know, if in general, anytime I find myself particularly anxiety, like lost in anxiety or feeling like resentment or claustrophobia or uh, any of that shit, it's almost a hundred percent of the time that I've become very fixated on myself, uh, which is, a, there's a term in Buddhism I love called self-cherishing. And so, Usually there's something happening where I'm like really concerned about my body or my identity or that, that sort of thing. And that's really, a, it's painful. And, but, you know, but then if I just sort of give all that shit up, start waking up early, making breakfast for the baby, you know, my wife's pregnant. So helping her as much as I can, even like sometimes if like my ego's like, Come on, she could do, she could, there could be something more. She's that kind of shit. Giving all that up and just helping. Hmm. Oh, all of a sudden, it's the most incredible meditation, you know, and even giving up the idea that anyone's going to notice that I'm helping, you know, like giving up the whole game and just making like the practice, uh, getting lost in the service. Yeah. It's interesting the type of accountability you're talking about versus the accountability that the mainstream media is asking us to have right now. I think mm. when it comes to accountability in the mainstream media and what they're asking of us, it's almost as if they are normalizing mistakes not being allowed to happen. 
Mm, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, as part of this, what I'm working with right now, and I haven't done it successfully. I, we, my wife and I did go through a phase of like hate watching Fox news, watching Fox news in a kind, in a kind of ironic way, watching Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity rolling our eyes at the brutishness of the whole thing. And then I, then I realized, Oh fuck, this is like kind of actually poisoning my consciousness. Mm. So we stopped and, uh, I've been really limiting my intake of Twitter. Uh, I in particular. Yeah, I thank you for noticing that. Yeah, I, 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 um, I just started realizing that because of like, you know, I guess my who I follow, I'm sure there's other accounts to follow that wouldn't be quite so like intensely negative. But not just that, if you look at the, you know, what's trending and stuff, you realize that Twitter is kind of capturing negativity in the sort mm. of technological amber and magnifying it. And so I, I began to realize that, oh yeah, what, what's happening here is another form of contagion. Like, so, you know, you have the, and, and, that, and that if you go back and look at the Spanish flu, 1918, and all the precursor global pandemics, one thing that's missing from the ecosystem is the internet and social media. And so this is a really interesting problem that our society is facing and one that hasn't, I think, been looked at closely enough by people who are actually studying the pandemic uh, because we have an, a new thing, which is, which is the, uh, I think they call it the nosphere, the the sort of whatever you want to call the sum total of all online stuff. It's a new biome, so to mm. speak, except it's not filled with life. It's filled with data. And uh, so what's interesting, because it's reflective, but it's also it amplifies and reflects, creates feedback loops. And I think it has captured COVID-19 in a digital form meaning that wow. the reflection of the virus is in is encoded on the internet meaning that you can actually infect yourself with a digital version of covid-19 which seems to have all of these like unique symptoms not a fever necessarily but certainly a high level of anxiety uh not a cough necessarily but kind of in, in desire to like go online and like t like say like like most obvious angriest aggression filled stuff right and you know what i mean so i think if you start looking at what's happening with people who don't have the virus covid-19 but have the sort of digital like fear uh version of it you'll notice that there's the symptoms all are very similar which is either you fall on one side of the spectrum, which is the never maskers, or you fall on the far side of the other side, which is like, we should wrap ourselves in fucking latex and like crawl into the ground for two months or something <laughs> like that, you know? <laughs> let's not do that. <laughs> yeah, let's not do that. But yeah, yeah. So, so, but you realize, oh yeah, okay. Well, basically by going on Twitter, I'm, uh, essentially just walking through digitized cough particulates right. and 
it's infectious because there's no new information coming out in the sense that the way you protect yourself and your family from COVID-19 is the same way you would protect yourself from the flu, from the cold, a cold, it's a cold, you know, it's, it's similar to the cold virus. It's not a cold, but that means, you know, what they're saying, wash your hands, social distance, wear a mask when you're outside Mm. and uh, avoid closed spaces with lots of people as much as you possibly can. Don't go outside when you have symptoms, stay inside. And if someone in your family has it, then they should quarantine in that room. You shouldn't go in there because of the viral load. This is the, from the very beginning, this is pretty much the marching orders. And so since that's not changing, then I don't see any reason, that any pragmatic reason to be online, uh, at least on like certain venues like Twitter that are just amplifying fear. And and because the, the real dark element of it is that the more anxiety ridden you are, the more frightened you are, the more angry you are, uh, the more your immune system is going to drop. Because if you're in fight or flight, then your body's going to try to conserve as much energy as it can. And that means re- removing resources from your immune system to deal with the sort of general anxiety. And then that's going to increase your chances for getting the very thing you're afraid of. So to me, you know, there has to be a kind of digital hygiene right now that go along with the physical hygiene. One of the great things about the midnight gospel is the fact that it's so high vibration. There's no low vibrations about watching this show. It's such an amazing transformational show. And we were talking about it earlier um, this year, how Netflix and this show specifically really changed the animated show in 2020. Now, a common hell for creatives can often be mistaking their wounds for their identity. Did you feel any obligation to make a point to an audience that you can embrace your wounds as well as maintain an identity? Mm. You know, I I love what you just said. <clears throat> and I, um, I, I had a conversation with a friend who said, something like this to me that except the way he put it is like, yeah, you're, you, you don't realize that you have sort of, uh, internalized like chains mm. and you've decided that your chains are your identity, which seems to me to be similar to a version of what you're saying, which is, um, really, I think that brings a, a great question up, which is, well, what is your identity? And, what do you think you are? This is a, I've heard that in certain, in Theravadan Buddhism, when you go into the forest to become a monk, the first thing they ask you is, where are you in your body? Find yourself in there. Where are you? And as you practice meditation, this is an exploration that you can do, which is sort of try to locate yourself in your body. Where is your identity? What is this thing that is so universally sort of upheld as uh, one of the great important qualities of human existence is this sort of pushing forward of our identities. And, uh, you know, it's that thing when you have to write a bio on Twitter or a dating app or something, and you summarize who you are in like three sentences. Well, I like, I love music. I enjoy great food. I love my friends, you know what I mean? You end up in this <laughs> a pretty embarrassing 
right. place where you're trying to re- reduce yourself to like a few sentences. But then even if, let's say you have a whole, you can write a book on, on who you are. Still, you, you, you're always, you feel a little like you're writing fiction because this is just a story that you're telling yourself regarding your identity. So as far as wounds being, uh, you know, people confusing wounds as their identity, I think that there's so many other confusions when it comes to identity or the like this, you know, maybe you could say many people think that they are their habituations. Maybe people think their their habitual reactions are who they are. You know, there's actually a, uh, for like a month, I started working with this Gurdjieff group. He was this mystic and it was really interesting. Like I've been reading all this Although his many one of his books, actually not even one of his books, this book called In Search of the Miraculous by one of his uh, acolytes or devotees or I don't know, disciples, students, uh, Al Spinsky hmm. and um, fascinating human being. But I was sort of taken with all of the wild sort of Western esoteric philosophical concepts in it. So I reached out to a Gurdjieff group and this guy said, well, come meet me at this cafe. And I went and met him at this cafe and he looked at me and he said, well, just so you know, you're, you're not gonna continue this. You're, and it was so weird the way he was just so certain of that. He's like this, I think like you're, he had a way of talking about it in this very Gurdjieff way about like, not a planetary alignment, but some kind of energetic alignment was giving me this moment of like reaching out, but it wouldn't be a lasting moment. And, but he did tell me this thing that I could do, which I've, I've carried with me ever since then, which is about 18 years ago, which is, he said, just start noticing the way you like buy stuff. So, you know, the next time you go to buy anything, even though these days, you know, I don't know what it's like where you're at, but there isn't a lot of going into a store and buying stuff. But, yeah. you know, you know that would, there, what, what you do is you just sort of watch when you're buying a thing. We're so used to buying shit. We've done it our whole lives. And the way you put the credit card in the machine or the way that you say thank you or the way that you take the stuff and leave, you just watch it. And you realize that it's this series of automatic movements that you have essentially put yourself on autopilot to do. Right. And and then so then from there, you sort of begin to explore. Well, wait, when am I not on autopilot? (laughs) Is my identity just what is autopilot? Is my identity just a sort of bundle of reactions to various stimuli? And then I call myself unique, even though really I'm, I wake up in the morning, I do whatever the fuck I do, brush my teeth, take a shower, eat in a certain way, you know, talk to people in a certain way, get, 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 get around, drink water in a certain way, bring the spoon to your mouth when you're eating soup in a certain way. It's not like you're improvising when you're eating soup you do it in a certain way or like if you smoke the way people smoke cigarettes in a certain way or the way you have a way you pull up your pants and you know put on your shirt the way you comb your hair you begin to realize that so much of a person's life is autopilot and so Mm. it's a it's a it's you know initially a little bit of a terrifying exploration because you find yourself trying to discover a place where you're not an autopilot Another thing he said to me was really interesting, which was, think of the last time you lost your keys. Where were you when you lost your keys? Did you exist? Do you think you existed then? 
Hmm. Who lost your keys? That's literally amnesia. Because if you knew what was happening when you lost your keys, they wouldn't be lost. Right. And suddenly you begin to realize like, oh my God, so much of my life is not just autopilot. So much of my life is literally, I'm not there at all. It's amnesia. It might, it's just white noise. And so much of my life is a forgotten memory. And so suddenly this is where the whole like identity construct begins to collapse. And you realize so much of the belief in the identity requires all kinds of tricks. You have to ignore that when you fall asleep, you wake up eight hours, six hours, seven hours later, depending on how you sleep. And, you know, maybe you remember some some of your dreams, but mostly you're just gone. And then a lot of the time when you're awake, you're just gone. You don't remember what you ate for lunch three days ago. You know what I mean? So yeah. so suddenly like this, I, this, you realize, oh, right, the identity is sort of a, a fantasy. Uh, uh, it's a, a story we tell ourselves to deal with the lack of continuity in our experience of reality. I stare out at this majestic scene. Here we see the cycle of life. There are beautiful, wondrous worlds full of intelligent beings with stories to tell. And I'm gonna interview them and put my interviews online and make a bunch of money to suck my dick. Shit. There's also a big link between depression and memory loss that I think doesn't get talked about enough. Mm. How do you feel about that connection between memory loss and depression? Well, I think it makes a lot of sense. Also in trauma too. Uh, you know, I think that basically at some point if you are in enough pain that it makes sense from an evolutionary perspective some aspect of your mind just decides to stop recording what's happening. And because it doesn't serve you well. My friend told me that there's an actual function in like, like gazelle, like beings that are like hunted by lions and stuff, where the reason that they don't have trauma is because they just forget. Like they, they just forget that they were chased by a lion or that they just watch their you know, calf get ripped apart by lions because wow. if they were to remember, there would, there would be no possibility of survival because they would all be shattered. You know, they'd all be like fucking trying to shooting heroin or like you know I mean? <laughs> chain smoking and shit. We're gonna fucking die, man. We're gonna fucking die. It's the tigers alive. All around us, man. What the fuck? Why are we cursing existence? You know, chain smoking gazelles. Yeah, yeah, just like doing anything to like escape from the reality of living among apex predators. And the, you know, so I imagine there's some similar thing in human biology that, uh, you know, where we retreat into amnesia, so to speak, and yeah. that the, 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 the traumatic memories that we have are locked deep in vaults, deep in our subconscious, because what purpose, how, how does it increase your chance of survivability to be 
constantly looking back on some fucked up thing that happened to you. And, and, you know, if you look at people with PTSD, you could see that the folks who haven't been quote lucky enough to have these memories wiped away or embedded deep in them. And I think there's a whole cluster of problems that happens related to that form of amnesia, which is like, you have all these personality quirks that you don't understand and you are overreacting to certain stimuli in your environment that are non-threatening at all. And, you know, you're still dealing with it, but it's a deeper in the digestive tract of the psyche, so to speak. But when it's not, you know, these people with PTSD are, are in a constant state of fight or flight. So I, I make sense to me. I think there it's a beautiful uh, and sad aspect of the human psyche that we yeah. when we're depressed we just don't remember we disconnect you just want to go to sleep you want out this whole reality thing just isn't quite right for you and so you want to just escape as much as you can as someone who's suffered from depression in the past i i know i know it backwards and forwards unfortunately one of the things you've been able to cultivate with the show is having an imagination without a ceiling or walls by, by way of bending into an insanity with these episodes. How have you survived horrors of your own imagination after the fact of making Midnight Gospel? Well, I mean, surviving horrors of my imagination, I love that. Uh, I think that's a, the horrors of the imagination. And I think what's so interesting about these horrors is, you know, I had this fantastic dream, like a pandemic dream where I was um, running from like, I thought it was like, I didn't know what it was. I was running from from something in the forest. I thought it was a predator running and running and running. I was terrified. And like, I ended up like stuck next to this icy lake. And I knew I was going to have to turn around and face this thing that was chasing me. And I turned around. It was this beautiful, magical lynx like creature. And it was sweet. It was like purring. And I like had this moment of like, fuck, I was running away from the most beautiful thing. But uh, regardless, what I'm saying is the horrors of our imagination or the horrors that you're talking about or horror in general uh, is is really worthy of not running away from, especially when there's no direct threat. And how much of what we consider to be horrifying is more akin to a movie screen upon which we're projecting things that we don't want to recognize or actually inhabiting our internal, um, our, our inside of us. And that through the practice of like meditation and you know, people have varying ideas on meditation and there's various types of meditation and some of them involve inducing like nirvanic states uh, or a state called samadhi, a kind of ecstatic state. And, but then there's a, the form I'm working with is more along the lines of like, you know, actually just sitting in, in the moment and it sucks, you know, it's like really in the beginning, it really is painful because you feel like, well, for me, it was, I felt like I was like someone had set me on fire or you get so fucking bored. You just want to die. Or you like, uh, you, it's weird. Cause like you'll sit and like within seconds you're falling asleep and all this crazy shit that when I was talking to my teacher in the beginning and just telling him like, man, I can't do it. I can't sit for like five minutes even be, to be still, 
because it feels, it hurts. And he said, well, you, you know, Duncan, that's inside of you. That's not the meditation that's hurting you. That's mm-hmm. you. And that's really like a, a brutal thing that initially to realize like, oh my God, yeah. Sitting still is just nothing. But when you're sitting still, you're not distracting yourself from this pain from that's, that, that may have been with you for, your, for years. You know, you, you, you're not distracting yourself anymore through, with your art, with your work, with workaholism, with fucking, with drinking, with running, with exercising, with like all the stuff that you've been doing the whole game, you begin to realize has just been this never ending escape from this horror that's been waiting for you in the moment. You've been running from your own tail, basically. And so that to me is really useful in the sense that the moment you encounter it and don't flee from it, and the moment you encounter it regularly, like every day, then you realize it's not quite solid. You know, the horror, the pain, the grief, it's not really like you thought it might have been. Maybe you thought it was like a like a diamond or some unbreakable, unmovable thing. But something about just sitting with it, you realize, wait, it's not really, it's actually kind of opaque. It's actually kind of, seems to be more like ice than diamond. And in in this sense, the attention appears to be the heat. Right. And the more I just sit with it without even trying to change it, but just feel it and, and let it be as it is, it seems to start shifting. And, and then through that pro- as a process over time, then all of a sudden you notice all the shit that you used to do that you thought was your personality. Maybe you've got a temper. Maybe you're sarcastic with people. Maybe you're uh, somebody who's impatient. Maybe you go into your phone all the time. All of a sudden that stuff kind of, it, it's not like it goes away completely, but suddenly you're in your phone less. Suddenly you're a little less snippy with people. Suddenly you're giving people a little more time. And I think maybe that's because all the snippy shit and the phone shit and all that stuff was just a, a, a way of evading dealing with the fact that you are on fire and you've mm. been on fire so long that you've begun to think being on fire is normal. And so if a person on fire, what do they do? They scream naturally but because if we're in a world of people on fire then what we do is we fake smile or we do those weird like you know like laughs (laughs) which is basically a scream and you know what i mean so it's cool because like suddenly like maybe you just start it's not like you stop screaming altogether because you're still a little on fire but you your screams they become more like yells maybe. And you don't feel quite as compelled to like constantly look at your fucking Instagram or, you know, like all that stuff, all the addictive patterns and stuff that you just realize, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like, of course I'm on fire. And if I was like staring at like porn or if I'm like engaged in a war on Twitter or if I'm like whatever, making music or if I'm hurriedly trying to write a novel or some shit, then at least I, I, I'm distracted from the fact that I'm on fire. But the problem with that is that your scream is going to get into your writing. You know, it's going to get into your right everything. You're able to filter the fire 
but is not enough to filter the entire experience because of it transcended and translated into other work, like you say. Yeah. What What's the easiest way to pay tribute to personal transformational power without looking back and looking forward? Hmm. Well, I mean... Paying tribute is curious. It's, this is, you know, I don't know that, this is again, like, this is sort of the, there's a, a, a paying tribute's a, a, a blast, actually. You know, I love paying tribute. I love, like, talking about the comedian, like Joe Rogan, man. If, like, people are talking shit about him, I, I hate it. And uh, I'll always, until I die, um, love that person. I know him and he's amazing. And like when recently there was some fervor that sprung up and it was to me really annoying because I know him and, uh, I love him and he was a mentor to me and he like brought me like up as a comic. And so, uh, I love paying tribute to him. He doesn't like it. I don't care. I love paying tribute to like my meditation teacher and to my spiritual teachers like David Nickturn and uh, Raghu Marcus and Ramdas, and they don't care. They're not mm. looking for any tribute to be paid, but I, I enjoy doing it. I love it. So there's a fun game to pay tribute, and there's a way to like pay tribute in a almost uh, a religious way. Like it is something that's sort of enshrined in uh, many different spiritual traditions regarding your relationship with your guru or your teachers and how important that relationship is. And over time, you realize there's this thing called disciplic succession, which is the passing on of like uh, wisdom through lineages. And right. uh, it's the apprentice system when it comes to crafts and stuff. But so I, I understand this idea of paying tribute. And uh, I think it's really quite beautiful and very important, uh, actually. And people who feel like, you know, whenever you see someone who seems to be like turning their back on their teachers or you ever you see someone who, for whatever reason, feels like they need to convince people that they're the thing that they did it all. It was all them. I, I would say be suspicious. Um, so but as far as your question, um, I don't know about paying tribute to transformation necessarily. Uh, I think that it's a paradox in the sense that there is something very beautiful about a person's need or desire to transform. Uh, and that within the desire to transform is a recognition of a potential. Uh, within the desire to transform is also a recognition of a kind of confusion. And But most importantly, within the desire to transform is recognition itself. And so there, that's where the paradox starts is that the moment that you begin to identify with the recognition and instead of that which is recognized, then the what's left, what can be changed? <laughs> you know, like right. where's the transformation in the in that which it recognizes? In the, you know, the that the Atman as it's called, or the thing that is aware of the awareness, or the thing that's aware of the confusion. Like how does that thing change? How does the field of awareness change? Where is the ability? How do you transform the thing that's holding everything that transforms? So mm. 
You know what I'm saying? So like there mm. is, that's what's so interesting is that you can identify with the transforming thing and you can get really caught up and like, oh my God, I'm transforming. I know I, it's the coolest thing ever. When you have those moments where like, holy shit, like I don't feel as angry as I used to feel on a daily basis or I don't feel quite as freaked out or completely okay right now. Even the things are nuts. Like those moments are great. They're exciting. They're exciting. But, you know, in those moments, you're just your attention is just falling on a quality in your life that uh, is in pro a pro a part of a process, so to speak. But it's where, where like the rubber hits the road, so to speak, is when you begin to explore the thing that is holding the transformation within it, uh, that field of awareness, whatever name you want to give it, when you begin to, you know, start identifying with that or, you know, to say you identify with it is not even the right way to put it. But all of a sudden you sort of begin to recognize a, a sort of vast, spacious quality to uh, to you. And that, that's the I think that's a long game to playing that you play between paying tribute to the transformation, bowing down to your transformation, worshiping your transformation and kind of falling in love with transformation, mm. you know, putting pictures on Instagram of you jogging and shit or uh, whatever, whatever it is, or like writing the transformation book and all that stuff. But I'm always brought back to this wonderful book by Pima Trojan called The Wisdom of No Escape, which starts off saying the moment you decide to start meditating because you want to be a better person, you're already not liking yourself you're already committing an aggression against yourself, which is like, what about what about the you that is you right now? And what if that you that is you right now is actually the best, as good as it gets, exactly right? And what if the situations surrounding you right now are completely what you signed up for? And that, that yeah, you didn't in this incarnation, no, you didn't get to meet uh, the guru. You didn't get to meet someone who could walk through walls. You didn't see someone fly through the sky or whatever, but it just so happens you were surrounded by a group of people and conditions that had within them a sort of kind of potential that you could harmonize with them in a way that would not just like, you know, help them so to speak, but but would also uh, allow you to feel fully at home in the world. But the whole time you were looking for the guru or the spaceship or the miracle, this great miracle that had appeared right in front of you, you weren't seeing at all. And so then suddenly it's like, oh shit, all I had to do is just see what's here. You were already the best version of yourself, but you just didn't happen to see it. I think this is why in so many different like Christian stories, like Saul of Tarsus uh, was on the road to Damascus. It's a famous, he used to, he would, he would like stone Christians. He was beat Christians up. Jesus appears to him and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And in that moment, there's this transformation. He gains some kind of realization. He's in the presence of the divine. And you know, the, interestingly enough, it's not like suddenly he could see clearly. It's that he became blind in that moment. And uh, so you hear all these like, and you know, um, 
you know, Christian songs. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And also in, in Buddhism, they talk about this thing called the, the view. Uh, but it's basically this realization that can happen to a person that isn't that you see something that was like literally invisible, but rather you realize that you have been filtering out the truth. That in, in fact, you're mm. in, in the process of interpretation of your surroundings, you were filtering out completely what was really around you. And so you, there is this like thing that can happen to people uh, where it's like, where for a moment everything seems spectacularly mystical. But this gets compared to like, yeah, if you were standing on your head for your whole fucking life, and then all of a sudden you stood on your feet, someone helped you or whatever, there would be a dizzy moment for sure. And then there would be a moment where like everything seemed as psychedelic as psychedelic could be. You would imagine this wild thing that you were experiencing was like some intense DMT trip when in reality you were just seeing the natural world. This is what it looks like when you're standing upright. So that's the, I, I think the idea is like, yeah, right now it could be that many people imagine that they have a very clear view of the world because they haven't begun to understand their own aggression. I mean, just that alone, you know, like if you, uh, I was watching this great YouTube video, Chugim Trumpa talking about this, um, concept. And like, if you like, and I love, I, I, my teacher is, was his student and he's incredible, but the, what he, what he, you know, and it's a very Buddhist thing of him to say, like, think of like when you're as angry as angry could be. Right. Uh, the times you've really lost your shit, so to speak. Like you are so not there and you are so not seeing things as they are. And you are so lost in this kind of drunken rage, almost a seizure. You're screaming, maybe you're throwing shit, you're banging your fists, eyes are bulging. You know, your neck is like, maybe your veins are like sticking out in your neck. It's an embarrassing thing to be that angry. Yeah. But if you look at the continuum of anger and you follow it from like overtly, insanely angry to just sort of annoyed, and then you follow annoyed to just mildly irritated all the way down, implicit in the continuum is a sort of um, a, a, a kind of inability to see things as they are. So um, that means that theoretically, if you were to sort of find a way to no longer be attached to your aggression or you were to find a way to sort of recognize that that was just one of the many illusionary pillars of your personality and wasn't you at all, then there could be a possibility that you start actually seeing things as they are instead of painted over with whatever particular coat of anger you have been naturally painting on your reality systems. What about the concept of nostalgia? as a cultural currency that people depend on to fix their happiness and creativity. So nostalgia, I think, is generally like, you know, the other day I went on Facebook and I, you know, spent years and years going to this wonderful camp, Camp Pinnacle in North Carolina. I was a camper and then a counselor and then the head counselor and then ran a ropes course and had all, still have friends from that camp. Love it. But I haven't gone I haven't looked at pictures of it in years. And I went on Facebook and found their Facebook page. And I just was just so nostalgic 
And so like, oh, God, mm. those were the good old days. And so in nostalgia, that's an interesting form of desire, isn't it? Because nostalgia, you're literally desiring the past. Uh, you know, at least like when you want a car or you want a new synthesizer or you want a, a new girlfriend or whatever it is, you know, you, it's achievable, right? But nostalgia is so funny in that it's like instantly disappointing. <laughs> you know, like you're, you're, it's a desire, you're, you're longing for the past, you're in your you're sort of like long. And it's also what's interesting, interesting with that particular form of desire is that it's actually like culturally kind of you know, put on a pedestal, you know, it's it's like people actually consider that nostalgia is there's something healthy or good about it, you know, but really it's definitely like of all the desires, it's the most brutal in the sense that like, mm. you're not, you're not definitely not getting back there. Like, what are you getting like, like as far, unless Terrence McKenna's right, 2045, they invent a fucking time machine. Right. I don't. And even then, you're just going to be able to go into the future because a time machine can't exist prior to its creation, supposedly. But whole different podcast. The point is, like, yeah, you can't you're not going back. And even if you did go back, you'd go back with your body. Right. So or is the idea that you're going to teleport back into that frame of time and be yourself. But are you going to add to it all your memories from the future? Because if that happened, then it really probably wouldn't seem the same way it seemed to you back then. It would seem smaller, you know, less important, right? You wouldn't, it wouldn't even satiate the, you know, the, the hunger that you had for it. So it's a really tragic form of desire, if you ask me. Nostalgia is a tragic form of desire. And in, implicit in nostalgia is a rejection of your present moment. And also you're forgetting that in 10 years you're going to be nostalgic for this shit right now. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're essentially, so then you begin living in reverse, you know, it's like now you're living in reverse. You're you actually wait to start living until the thing that you loved has passed long enough that you regret not being there to really love it. <laughs> it's terrible. And you know what's great is both these things can exist simultaneously. So as long as you acknowledge that there's a sweet in it, there is a sticky, hyper sweet quality to nostalgia. But it's it's there's also a cutting gross like dirty quality to nostalgia Absolutely. there's also a kind of like facing the reality of impermanence in the most extreme way which is like this shit is long gone like that world that you are nostalgic for it only is living in your uh nervous system now like you have pro it's a it's in a hard drive it's in pictures it's in varying memories that all are vastly different according to what brain they happen to be manifesting in and the thing you're nostalgic for could be another person's hell that they're glad to be out of you know and so but ultimately it's like nostalgia is i think the uh, similar to like looking at your phone when you're around people you love it's like except you're doing it with your entire present mm. moment you're basically telling your present moment hold on a second i got a call i'm gonna look at this text and the text is your past and the present moment is like, what about me? What? what? We're here. This is this is it here. Now, this is the thing you are looking for. You're looking for is actually right now. It's here. You know, this is where you will find it for real as you are. It's one of the things Facebook offers, of course, you know, memories. You can go back five, ten years ago and it's just a trip to be able to access that person you were 
and see how much that person has been reduced or abandoned or transformed and so on and so forth. It's it's a time capsule. Yeah. And and you can't and it really it's not, you know, it, even that idea of like maybe you weren't even that person. Right. I mean, this, this is the problem we're dealing with like a, a really intense spectacular catastrophic form of delusion that is uh, like most human beings have to deal with, which is that we're like uh, a centipede, except we're only one segment, but we're a centipede that hallucinates that it has a past, literally hallucinates in the sense that your memories, you could say, are a form of hallucination. Right, right. Right? So it can, you can actually, by remembering things, you can induce specific hallucinations, which are, you know, uh, some kind of reflection of the past. But then when you start looking at like the way people's memories seem to veer away from the reality that actually happened, you realize that the mechanism of duplication is far from perfect. So you're remembering things in a way that they didn't even happen. Your mind's filling in blanks with just pure fantasy. And so people don't really want to deal with this because it's like they want to imagine that they're a centipede and their memories are the segments that lead back and connect them to, to the past. When the reality is, is that the entirety of everything before this moment right now is gone. It's no different from death. In fact, it is death. Hmm. And so people don't really want to deal with that. This is impermanence. And so instead of just dealing with it, which is just recognized, like not, not only it did that stuff, if, it, if, it, if it, we're not, we can't be certain it even happened. But let's pretend for a second that it did happen and you have some kind of murky uh, memory of the past, a kind of foggy memory. You definitely, like if you look back at the past, think of like the best meal you ever had, if you can even remember that. The odds are pretty good you're gonna make something up just because you feel kind of embarrassed that you can't remember the best meal you ever had. And so you'll make something up. You'll be like, oh yeah, it was the time that I was in Paris and I had that incredible Roquefort cheese and those crackers. And so then you'll be like, now try to taste that cheese through the memory. You can't. Try to taste the crackers. You can't. Try to remember what you did right before you went into the restaurant to have the cheese and what you did right after. You probably can't. Try to remember the night you fell asleep or try to remember the shit you took after the Roquefort cheese. It was like, you know what I mean? You can't remember any of it. But and also you're probably making up this great memory that you had anyway. And you realize it's a kind of really sad quality, a kind of I don't want to say pathetic, but like you realize like right like you're 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 I the, the thing we call ourselves or identity is so intent on pushing itself forward as an existing phenomena that it goes to all the trouble of weaving together disparate memories to produce the fantasy of a past which really isn't there at all. And you know, that that's really for a lot of folks who are deeply invested in themselves and have worked really hard to become a me, an I, and are very proud of all their accomplishments and very proud of all of this and that. It's blasphemy to suggest the whole damn thing's a hallucination that you're having. And the and then of course the future, which is the opposite of nostalgia, would be longing for the future. And this is if you're looking at like you could say that, you know longing for the future, longing for the past, it's a form of aversion to the present moment. But similarly, you're sort of focusing on like, this is how things will be. And 
how wonderful is this? You know, because it's obviously never happens. You know, like you meet the girl and you're like so in love, that first beginning thing. And you start, you know, and how many love songs are completely based on we're gonna hold each other forever. Right. You know, how many fucking love songs are completely built on nonsense? You know, we'll make the night last forever. <laughs> that kind of shit. No, you won't. You're not going to make the night last forever. You're going to come. You're going to fall asleep. You're going to wake up next to this person. You're not going to be quite as high. The MDMA will have faded off. This will be a normal person. You'll be kind of normal. And you'll be like, hey, you want to hang out next week? And then you'll hang out next week. And then you'll, ah, you're wonderful. I love, and then, but eventually this, the passion's going to shift. The, the masks will come off. The shadow will be revealed. Yeah. All that stuff. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and a lot of the times uh, you, that person that you used to be so enraptured by, you like, you like get stressed when they text you. You don't want to talk to them anymore. You know what I mean? And so you you realize like, oh yeah, okay, I get it. This is what what has been happening here is that I have essentially bought in to uh, a kind of um, collective delusion regarding the nature of reality. And to even like say these things around the wrong people, they they, they get very upset. And they could say you're being a negative or a nihilist or something. And it's like, no, I'm not being a nihilist at all. I, I think there clearly is a thing. We do have memories. They're real. You have memories. I'm just saying that, like, there's a place in between nihilism and eternalism. You know, there's a place in between complete abandonment of reality in the sake of some negative, like, blasted crater self where you give up on the world and you're like, it's all a dream and I'm a phantom. No, you're not. You're right here. We're talking. You're not a phantom. I don't think if it's a dream, it's like a, it's a, it's a kind of dream where you can like, you're going to have to go to the hospital if you get sick. It's going to cost you a lot of money. <laughs> it's not the kind of dream you wake up from uh, uh, in the normal sense of the term dreaming, you know, but then also it's not quite real. So like, you know, there's a place in between these two extremes. Uh, and that's the moment that we're in right now. Do you ever feel that your expectations of yourself and your favorite work behind you from years ago, do, do you ever feel that competes with your happiness and sense of humor because of this nostalgia we're talking about? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I had to work through that with David. You know, in the beginning, I remember when I first started working with him, and I, 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 I was telling him, like, David, you know, I had this experience once when I meditated and I merged into the whole universe. I did too, I did have that experience. It was amazing, came out of the blue, I was completely sober, just meditating all of a sudden, it was like 10 hits of acid level, like just not there and it was some total of everything. It was amazing, what an experience. I told him about this in, in a completely non-skeptical, non-cynical way. He said, tell me about that experience. If you like, if you could really describe it to me, describe it to me. So I'm like, well, you know, I was sitting there and then just all of a sudden I wasn't there. And he's like, well, what, like, as you're thinking about this experience, what's it like? Like, did, what, if you had to describe it, is it solid? Is the experience very solid now? Or does it feel kind of like, like maybe it's, it, it's, um, 
a little transparent or what is it? What color would it be? But in this deconstruction of this thing that I'd really gotten stuck on regarding this like weird moment I'd had meditating, he was illuminating in this very sweet way that, yeah, maybe, but you're not, that's not happening now. And that also in my, every meditation after that, I was holding, I was using that as a watermark for a sitting. Like, well, I didn't merge into the universe today. You know what I mean? So I'm like taking a thing that's long gone and I'm using that as a Benchmark. metric. Yeah. And and so because of that, um, I was, again, cheating on the present moment. It's essentially like nostalgia is like the blow up doll of the mind. You know what I mean? Mm. Like here you have this luscious, beautiful, powerful, living, incredible, wild, highly impermanent swarm of phenomena surrounding you inside of you which you are part of but instead of like engaging with that by being with it as it is now you're like fucking the mouth of a constructed moment that lives in your mind and wondering why you feel weird it's like have you ever had sex with a flashlight <laughs> It's not the same. <laughs> I haven't. Oh, you should try. Highly recommend it. Highly recommend it. But you know, it's interesting because like, it's almost as though you can trick yourself for a second. Like, you know, when you have sex with a human person, that's amazing. And when you come and you feel like there's a, your, your physiology, your, 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 your body tells you like, good job. That's what we were supposed to do here. Spread the DNA. You did it right. And when you fuck a flashlight, it's like your poor animal body kind of does get tricked. The first couple of times, it will tell you, this is right. If I can spread our genes. But then like the uh, third time, it's like, wait a minute. That's, that's not a person. It can't spread the DNA. <laughs> and then, you, then, it, then it doesn't, you don't get the same satisfaction. So nostalgia, I think, is the fleshlight of the past. And if you're lost in the past, then you're no different than someone who's been like banging a fucking blow up doll. You know, yeah, okay, yeah, it's your girlfriend. That's not your girlfriend. That's plastic. It's <laughs> not a lie. <laughs> that is such a great analogy. I love that, man. I love that. Thank you. Do, do you miss not being able to perform as a comedian at clubs right now? You must miss that. Yeah, because like as I'm saying that, I'm like, well, maybe that's a bit. I'm going to write that down. Um, the past is a flashlight. All right. Uh, yeah, yeah man, I do, I do miss it. And I, um, I, I deeply miss it. It was an artistic outlet for me. It was also like a kind of gladiator competition that you would, you know, like twice a week for me, which isn't enough. But twice a week, you're going to the comedy store and you're like, you're it's a it's going into a fucking pit you know what i mean like you don't mm. know what's gonna happen so it's it's very it's like you know physically it's not risky at all but on an egoic level it's quite risky so it's nice because you're forced to take risks a few times a week oh it's perilous for your ego what about the risks i mean where do you draw the line between being mindful and mindless as a comedian in 2020 
Well, you, I don't think there are. I mean, there's people who go online and tell jokes right now. But I mean, as far as like a stand up comedy, there yeah. is no stand up comedy in 2020. Stand up comedy is done right now. So that's put on yeah. pause, you know. And, and as far as being mindful and mindless, I think what's wonderful about the time we're in is like we're all getting like hardcore education in like matters that many of us probably didn't really want to spend too much time thinking about, which I really appreciate, you know, oppression, um, the history of, you know, racism in America, all these things that like, you know, have come forward for us since George Floyd was publicly executed. You know, if like, I think for a lot of us, like we've begun to really deal with like all kinds of uncomfortable shit in our, our, ourself. And also I would say mindless comedy is not going to be as funny as mindful comedy. And I'm going to I'm not I'm not saying mindful and mindless is and here's something you mindful people talk about and here's something mindless people talk about like it's different. I'm just saying that it's always interesting to see someone on stage who is fully there versus someone who's on stage regurgitating jokes, but not being in the moment. And my favorite comics when you are the ones who seem to have by whatever method figured out a way to be fully human on stage. You know what I mean? Because a lot of times when you run into people, they're not there. They're just like what we were talking about earlier. They're just on autopilot. So just that alone, when a comedian gets on stage and is fully there, wow, that's like seeing a wild animal or something. (laughs) You know, like what the fuck is that? Oh, that's a person who's fully there. And that's automatically funny, weirdly. You know, there's automatically, it's so automatically ridiculous that you would be on stage in front of a group of people. All jokes aside, how, what a ridiculous predicament you've gotten yourself in to be in front of a room of hundreds of people who are all staring at you. (laughs) That's automatically absurdly funny. But then if you add to it well-written jokes, well, then you're a great comic. Have you ever had to dilute what you say as a comedian to protect others from their own responses? Um, I, I try, you know, I feel like if you start worrying about protecting other people when you're doing stand-up comedy, you're going to get off track. Mm. A lot like you can't like if you're lucky enough that you come up with a joke that you think is going to disturb people, but is really funny, then, you know, I think you owe it to all the people who aren't going to be disturbed to tell the joke. Uh, And and yeah, because, you know, if I when I think back to like all my favorite music and all my favorite comedy and stuff, thank God they didn't like think to themselves, this is going to disturb people, you know. Can you imagine? Like, well, it's not fair. And, you know, I, you know, as as a cancer survivor, I hate cancer jokes. I really do. And also, like, I have, like, some ethical problems and people are, like, doing any joke that seems to be lauding suicide and, and, like, you know. But also, like, there's a joke one of my favorite comics, Doug Doug Stanhope, tells uh, regarding suicide. I'm not going to ruin it here. And I find it ethically to be the most fucked up, dark, negative joke and i would never tell it myself uh you know because it's like i i I don't know i don't want to invite people i don't want to produce the potential you know that i'm like lubing up someone's like latent 
um, suicide. But uh, that being said, it's one of the funniest jokes I've ever heard in my fucking life. And, you know, for me, I can be simultaneously offended, deeply offended, <laughs> worried, all square and like, what? You're going to get people killed with that joke. And also roaring with laughter. And because these two things happen simultaneously. And in fact, the offense makes me laugh harder, like realizing there's some part of me that's like, wait a minute, Mr. Taranoff, you didn't say that anymore. It's like, <laughs> how wonderful. And then also when you begin to realize that he's actually, that's one of the strings on his like instrument, so to speak. He's aware yeah. of the offense and he's playing that. He's, he's like tickling mm. that part of you, you know, and it's benevolent. That's the other thing when you realize, oh, my God, it's so benevolent. He doesn't want people to kill themselves. But really, he's tickling my offense bone. And it's funny the way he's doing it. And I love it. So to me, I think that as an artist, you owe the world yourself, your honesty, who you are, your authenticity. If your instincts are telling you this is the thing to do, if it's comedy, it better be funny because that's what you're supposed to do is make people laugh. But do it. And if you really wanted to make people laugh and you thought it was funny and after the show, someone comes up to you and is like, that really offended me. I think it's okay to say to them, I'm really sorry. Yeah. I, know, I, knew, I knew it would offend people. And I really didn't want you to feel bad tonight. But, you know, I also knew that some people would really love it. And I thought it was funny. But I totally respect that you're offended. And uh, I think there's a way to do that. You know, to be like, yeah, yeah I, I bet you got offended. I'm sure you did. I, I'm, I was scared to tell the joke. Because I thought this conversation might happen. Does it frustrate you that after months of being out now, there, there are still people who either refuse to watch the Midnight Gospel or, or watch the show and don't get it? Or do you feel that there's a power in being misunderstood by the right kind of people? Well, you're going to, you know, if you, if like something that you make goes to a, a broad enough audience, then some percentage of people are not going to understand it. And so I think that's a quality of doing something in, in the, like a, that, that, re, that, ha, that reaches a lot of people. So if you're using Netflix as the stage, it's going all over the planet. And you could expect that you are going to – some people are – I know I knew when we were making them, like some people are going to be like, this this is – what the fuck is this shit, man? Fucking uh. I knew that. And certainly when I'm watching TV, there's things that come on where I'm like, get the fuck out of here. This pretentious, what the fuck is this shit? Right. And all of us do that to some degree. So I knew it would be misunderstood. And I, I, I knew there would be some group of people that just, it didn't appeal to them. They didn't like it. Uh, but I didn't want it to be misunderstood. And I, I, I don't, I, I don't think being misunderstood is necessarily a sign that you've made something great or that you've made something not so great. Mm. Uh, you know, I don't think it's – I'm not going to go by that metric because, uh, you know, sometimes people can trick themselves into thinking if they're massively misunderstood that they're punk rock and what they've created is somehow too wonderful for the world. Uh, that's the worst form of, like – denial when it comes to lack of skillfulness and you know translating your inspiration into something the world can understand similarly though um 
I would say that if you try to make a thing for a really broad audience, if, if, if either you're making a thing because you want to be misunderstood or you're making a thing because you want everyone to understand it, then what's happening there is you're getting caught up in the result. And there's a verse in the Bhagavad Gita, which I love, which is you have a right to your action. You do not have a right to the fruits of your action. So to me, this means as long as we stay in this moment, and when you're creating and you love to create and you're making the thing that you love and you're, and you're, and you're, you're fully in that, then whatever happens is going to happen. But if you were fully in the creation of a thing and, and, and pouring your love into it or pouring your love into the collaboration, and after the fact, someone comes up to you and says, you know, man, that thing you made, it bored the shit out of me. Then you can honestly say to them, I was... I loved making that thing and I'm so proud of it. And that's true. You know, whereas if like you were kind of making a thing because you wanted to manipulate a crowd into liking it. And so you're like analyzing demographics and trying to place in the thing that you're making sort of magnetic bits of mimetic fucking catnip to try to hypnotize or seduce the world. But you didn't really have some true inspiration. Well, then when someone comes up to you and is like, that was total dog shit, man. Even though you might say, no, it wasn't. Inside, you have to think to yourself, well, I don't know if it was good because it didn't feel good to me. I was just setting like a trap for people's attention. I didn't really care what I was making. And mm. so, you know, with the Midnight Gospel, we, we put our whole souls into that thing. And um, there was a lot of love in creating that show. And so if it's misunderstood, you know, all I can say is, well, from our perspective, we loved making it and we poured our hearts and our love into that thing. So there's nothing I can do other than say that's that's every moment in creating that show was filled with like our love and our passion and our like uh, excitement to be given a chance to make something unique. Duncan Trussell, thank you for joining us once again on Fly Fidelity. You've been very generous with your time. My pleasure, man. I love chatting with you, man. I've, I was really looking forward to this, and I'm really glad to uh, that we get to have these moments.